Hey, Katie, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm good. Would you like to hear a story? I would love to hear a story. Okay, so I am not in New York. I haven't been for a while. Uh, yeah, this might like the full story of my quarantine. Maybe arguably interesting, but a story for another day. But the point is I'm in a more rural area. And one of the ways I've fought the encroachment of insanity, which is very important right now, is to go for long walks. Usually what I do when I go for these walks is I just listen to our podcast, but I, I cut out your half. So I just listen to myself. <laughs> totally understandable. I would do the same thing. So I was doing this last week. There's this one walk I do that's about um, five and a half miles. And, you know, it's a good way to kill time, stay sane. And I'm walking down this one nice scenic road and I notice something on the side of the road and I bend down. And someone has put, driven a tiny little stake into the ground and posted some sort of sign with uh, like a little doggy bag, a plastic bag as lamination. And next to that is what I can only describe as dog shit. So what happened was someone noticed that people weren't picking up their dog shit on this road and they printed out the part of the town like regulation or statute that says you have to pick up after your dog and they walked down the road and every time they found dog shit they put a little sign next to it like hey man you broke the law wow and yeah and i'm i have so many questions about this i if you happen to be the person who did this please get in touch because when you think of the personality type of someone who would walk down a road making these like handcrafted little signs with printed out bits of the of the town code it's just incredible it's like the the college roommate who would always leave notes about cleaning the sink or the fridge but but times a million and i'm um genuinely impressed at this person's spirit you know i've been trying to create a new a new meme which is okay so we have the karen the karen complains to the manager i want the katie to be the person who doesn't complain to the manager, but like directly complains to the person. And so it sounds like what you have on your hands is a real Katie. This is a passive aggressive Katieism. It is a little passive aggressive. My style would be more like confronting them to their face, like taking the dog shit, doing a DNA test, tracking down the address of the owner of the dog shit, and then returning the dog shit to their house with a note, of course. Wow. That's yes. very that's very ambitious. As someone fascinated by human behavior, I have like one of my questions is the person who wasn't picking up after their dog, would this shame them into starting to pick up after their dog or would just the sheer audacity and and aggressiveness of it if it, like there'd be a backlash effect where they just have their dog shit more. I could almost see that being yeah. an equally likely outcome. Yeah, absolutely. You need to get down to the bottom of this. You need to stand there on the road and wait and see people who don't pick up their dog shit observe this and then interview them, maybe for the podcast. I could also like find a source of dog shit and plant it myself and then wait to see who comes out to put a sign down. You know, it might be easier just to use human shit in a case like this. <laughs> and with that, we're like losing our, our last grasp on, on civilization, I feel like. We've been quarantined for too long. Uh, Jesse, what podcasts are, are uh, we recording right now? We are recording Blocked and Reported, the first podcast. The first podcast, period? Yep. Just the first podcast? Wow. Oh. Yep. Yes. We okay. invented, we took this medium, we invented it, and we're going to run with it. I like it. I mean, uh, I, I hope there's some way that we learned to profit off of this, this great invention that we've come up with here. If Next only. week, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So what are we talking about today? 
God help us, we are going to talk about the Tara Reid Joe Biden accusations, and we're gonna we're gonna get to the bottom of that in the same way I'm gonna get to the bottom of the of dog shit Gazi. <laughs> All right. So, uh, uh, what else are we talking about? We're gonna talk about a far right provocateur named Candace Owens, who Twitter censored, and also uh, my own personal interactions with her, which were quite unpleasant. Let's start with this whole Joe Biden thing, because I think um, it seemed like the obvious sort of thing we would talk about. But I I know I personally have been procrastinating for a few weeks because it seems like one of those ridiculous stories where you have the combination of something that happened long ago. Or didn't happen long ago. Exactly. I I apologize. But it's also like the thing where I feel like 80 percent of the people involved in commentary and reporting on this are on some level a little bit full of shit because they it's so clearly politicized and there's such high political stakes that it was one of those stories that just sort of, it makes me tired, to be honest. And I know that's the wrong attitude because it obviously matters a great deal if he did what he was accused of. But my initial reaction was just like, how could you, I don't know, it seems like a complicated situation. The dividing line has really been, uh, you know, uh, Biden fans and Sanders fans. Sanders fans gleefully point out um, you know, why, why don't you, if you say you believe women, why don't you believe her? And they, I think, see this as a way of, I don't think most of them actually think Biden is going to actually drop out at this point, though some are calling for that and, and be replaced by Sanders. But there is a little bit of glee in this idea that, like, you picked this guy and now look at this horrible thing he was accused of. And the hypocrisy is extremely obvious, but we should probably get into the details just in case anybody has been, um, I don't know, in quarantine and hasn't uh, heard about what happened yet. Yeah. Do you want to do you want to take this one? <laughs> okay. So in April of this year, this woman, Tara Reid, who served as a Joe Biden aide in the 1990s, went on a podcast um, hosted by a woman named Katie Helper, and she accused Biden of pushing her up against a wall in 1993 and essentially like fingering her without her consent. So like that's sexual assault. Like Clearly, it's an allegation of sexual assault. And at first, this didn't get really that much traction. Some like sort of left-leaning media outlets reported it immediately, like The Intercept, um, and started digging more into the story. But it was sort of ignored by, you know, CNN, MSNBC, New York Times, Washington Post. Um and more has come out in the past in the past couple of weeks. So she she claimed in the beginning that she had told a couple of people. Those people have since come out. Some have corroborated her story. Some have not. Um, and we we got sort of a, a behind the scenes look at Tara Reid's at the process of Tara Reid's allegations going from over the past year um, in a piece a piece that came out in Vox this week um, by Laura McGann. I believe is the reporter's name. And this piece, I, I really recommend reading it because it turns out that Reed had gone to McGann uh, a year ago and she alleged that Biden was like sort of handsy with her and um, and and sort of there was like weird power stuff. She didn't but she didn't accuse him of sexual assault or sexual misconduct. And she was actually really clear about that. She said, like, this is a story of abuse of power, not of sexual misconduct. So it turns out that she shopped this story around to a bunch of different places. So Vox, The New York Times, Washington Post, and none of these outlets ran with the story. And so this was August of 2019. And she's claiming now that, you know, they didn't run the story because um, because it was this sort of, I guess, like a, a sort of media conspiracy in some ways that they were trying to sort of silence her. But 
I have a really hard time imagining that reporters who are hungry as shit and want to break stories at any of these outlets would sort of have, you know, um, killed this story because they were like in Joe Biden's pocket. I like, I just don't, I don't believe that. No, and and, um, and McGann said in her Vox piece that she was trying very hard to like confirm this to the point where she could report it, and she got scooped by other outlets. Like the, right. there's a little bit of conspiracy theorizing going on among some people on the left that that people like tried to suppress this and we'll get into the details but the fact is her story has changed and sometimes it was about sort of sexual harassment and handsiness sometimes it was about this not that that wouldn't be serious but a much more serious allegation of an all-out sexual assault in the halls of congress right right yeah, and so now, you know, there's been this rash of think pieces with people like Maureen Dowd, for one, coming out and saying essentially she doesn't believe Joe Biden. She's known Joe Biden for 30 years, and he doesn't seem like the type to do this. And then at the same time, you have, like, a, the, the feminist Kate Mann writing in The Nation, Joe Biden is the type to do this, whereas, like, there is no type for rape. There is no type for sexual assault or for harassment. Like, everybody's sort of speaking out their ass when it comes to this. But the whole thing has been really fascinating to me because – for one thing, it really shows the limits of Me Too. Um, and I also, and especially the Me Too dictate to hashtag believe women, which I thought was insane from the very beginning and was going to come back and bite Democrats in the ass. And it has. It has many times. Uh, did with Al Franken. Now it is with Joe Biden. But this idea that women, it, you know, and there's been some debate with now there's this sort of revisionist history where proponents of Me Too are saying, like people like Alyssa Milano coming out and saying, like, when we said believe women, we didn't really mean like believe women. Yeah. But why was that your fucking slogan then? You know, the slogan wasn't like believe women after a thorough investigation. The slogan was believe women. It's definitely true that some people were saying believe women at the peak of it, just as like a, a straightforward dictate. But you think that was the general narrative at the time? From my recollection, it was. I mean, obviously, like there's more nuance and slogans are short and it's pithy and it's there to sort of, I don't know, I guess like slap people in the face, um, you know, and, and but what these like during this time, one of the one of the narratives that that emerged in all of these pieces was this, was this idea that false rape allegations are super uncommon and therefore you should believe women just because false allegations are super uncommon and that's not actually true i mean we really don't have good data on false rape allegations or false assault allegations i mean most of the data that we have is says that like between 2 and 8% of claims of sexual assault claims that are investigated by the police are determined to not be true right, right. and so Two, between two and eight percent is actually not rare at all. Just like the definition of rare is not like two percent or eight percent or whatever. Um, but that also doesn't cover, you know, false allegations or any allegations made in public, made on social media, made to the press. So we really don't have any idea, you know, how common this is or how, how uncommon this is. But that was the narrative that in these Me Too, these positive Me Too stories kept kept repeating: false allegations are extremely rare. False allegations are extremely rare. And I, you know, and I think the point of, of repeating this was to bolster this idea that you should hashtag believe women because women hashtag don't ever lie, which is hashtag bullshit. Yeah. And well, I mean, so it seems like one of those things where there's an important kernel of truth, which is that for a very long time, um, women were often in some contexts, reflexively not believed. And I think it remains really hard to, to publicly accuse someone of rape. And there's a lot of incentives 
not to do that. The problem is just when you go too. But okay, I'm going to interrupt you real quick here. Yeah. There are also incentives to do it. I mean, uh, yes, you can like be put through the ringer. Um, Christine Blasey Ford obviously like got lots of death threats and stuff. It can also be a way of gaining power, of gaining sympathy. I, there are lots of incentives to make allegations. I mean, right now we're living in a moment where sort of martyrdom and victimhood is this very powerful sort of social force in the world. So I can absolutely see, you know, there are downsides to reporting. There are also upsides to reporting. Yeah. No, I mean, look, it's complicated. And I especially think moving beyond the Reed case, people people often ignore the fact that like when you bring this stuff online and especially in cases where people can make accusations anonymously or will the, where they will quickly get a surge of support, I think it changes the calculus a little bit and maybe increases the possibility and incentives pointing toward false accusations. I guess in Reed's case, it is sort of the straightforward this thing happened to me. Do I report to the police? Do I tell journalists? And and just the, the fog of time makes it so hard. I feel so pulled in different directions by this because A, I, I don't think like the sort of man who would, I get what you're saying that there's not like a type of person who rapes, but I do think the sort of person who would just sexually assault someone in a hallway is that's unlikely to have been the only time they ever did that. Do you think that's true? Absolutely. Okay. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I also, you know, and like one thing in this, in this Vox piece by Laura McGann, she says that Tara Reid was saying, you know, my story never really changed. I was, I just wasn't forthcoming with the details because I was afraid of Joe Biden. Well, what changed? I mean, obviously, well, obviously what changed is that Joe Biden, you know, is now the democratic nominee for president, but why is she not afraid of him now? But she was a, a year ago. It just, to me, it doesn't add up. And, and I've been trying to sort of uh, reserve judgment on this particular case because like nobody knows I don't know you don't know the only people who really know about this are Joe Biden and Tara Reid if they even actually know I mean human memory is notoriously fallible yep. um, you know we we know from the many many people who've been exonerated from you know from prison after being convicted of crimes including rape and murder that things like eyewitness accounts even victims eyewitness accounts are notoriously uh fungible you know and i'm not saying that she wouldn't like recognize her boss or whatever but i do also think it's possible like during the the kavanaugh hearings my position on kavanaugh and blasey ford was i sort of believe both of them i believe that she believes that this happened i believe that he believes that this doesn't happen and when you have events that happened decades ago it's very possible that your memories could get sort of conflated and fucked up and we like this this shit just it's not like our memories are not like cameras you know they're in, incredibly easy to easy to change they're subject to all sorts of influence um so i don't think that i think that it's kind of a little bit crazy to speculate on what happened because honestly none of us know even possibly them that said, you know, there's also an the other irony of this case is that Joe Biden in particular has really sort of been on the forefront of ending due process. So in 2011, the Obama administration issued what's now called the Dear Colleague letter. And so in this letter, basically what they what they mandated was that school universities that receive federal funding had to adhere to these Title IX guidelines that would uh, regulate how universities handers, handle sexual assault. And that has resulted in hundreds of lawsuits against universities by primarily men who were accused of sexual assault and weren't given things like 
an opportunity to defend themselves. They weren't allowed to confront their accuser. In some cases, they weren't allowed to see the results of the investigation into their conduct. In some cases, they weren't allowed to even know the particular claims against them. And so these men were expelled from school, you know, lost career opportunities, their lives were totally derailed. And so there's now been this like massive rash of lawsuits against these schools, many of which they're actually winning. Um, and Joe Biden was at the was the fucking cheerleader for this policy. And so it took due process totally off the table when it came to universities. And the, you know, in the, the legal system, there's a presumption of innocence. That was gone. Um, and so Betsy DeVos, just this week, the educates the the Trump uh, Secretary of Education rescinded rescinded these these Title IX guidelines. And Biden stood up and said, as president, I will reinstate this. So like this is one of the few things the few things that I think the Trump administration has done well was reinstate due process in cases of sexual assault or allegations of sexual assault on campus. And Biden, who now says maintains that he's been falsely accused of sexual assault, says that he will take due process back off the table. It just the whole thing is so fucked up. I, I find that yeah, the way people talk about the Title IX stuff where the federal government gave universities really difficult guidelines, basically saying that they had to follow this standard of of fifty one percent likelihood of guilt means you are guilty. I mean, this this could be the subject of ten of our episodes alone. Just just you have colleges investigating and figuring out how to discipline kids over what it what is a a crime, and it's just it's been disastrous. And I agree with you. Like Betsy DeVos is a, is a nightmare in so many ways. To me, this is the only thing she's done that makes some sense and one of the only good things the Trump administration has done. But but the nature of this discourse is like you saw people online saying that, you know, schools are now effectively condoning rape because it, right, the right. accused has has basic rights, not even as sturdy as they'd have in a criminal context, but that's condoning rape. So you have right. It, it's just sort of off the rails in this weird way. And and I think the Biden case has thrown into relief some of the complexities here when you're trying to evaluate cases where it's not like Weinstein, where there's like a lot of named accusers and it's very clear what happened, but there's some fuzziness here. And I, I don't think it's realistic to set aside sexual assault as as this area where evidentiary standards are totally different. Like, like I hate to say it, but if someone's story changes a lot, sometimes there's explanations for that. Sometimes it has to do with the fallibility of memory. But at a certain point, like you, you need to have some way of evaluating the strength of evidence and you can't have a totally different laxer standards for accusations of sexual assault and it's really difficult and it requires trade-offs but i hope the lesson people learn from this is just this often isn't easy i remain really unconvinced about what happened here i i don't really see why she would have made this up i also do think her story changed i don't i don't think biden would have just done this once i don't know how much i should factor in the fact that he is quite handsy around women i don't think that makes it that he's a rapist, but don't you think if there was like another universe where Biden didn't do any of the handsy stuff, you'd be a little bit less likely to believe the accusation? Does that not affect it at all for you? No, I think, I mean, it. I don't think for me it does, but I think for other people it does. I mean, it's sort of like the Woody Allen thing. Like, uh, like to be frank, I don't think that Woody Allen molested his daughter, but the fact that he married his girlfriend's daughter does, ca- you know, cast out on his, on his character in other ways. And I think the same thing is true with Biden, even though, like, I was listening to Mike Pesca on The Gist, and Mike was talking about this, and he was saying, you know, Biden for years has sort of has credited his success to this sort of like real empathy that he has. And part of his way of expressing empathy is to touch people. And maybe it's not appropriate, maybe it's antiquated, but 
that is not the same thing as shoving a woman against a wall and putting her hands your hands in her vagina. I mean, it's just in terms of like, you know, Kate Mann who wrote wrote in the nation that the fact that he like sniffed women's hairs hair and hugs them makes him the type to rape somebody. And it just like I mean, the whole thing, like, like during Me Too, you know, one of the criticisms of Me Too was that the fear was that people would sort of inflate normal behaviors or slightly inappropriate behaviors to assault, right? And supporters of Me Too said, no, 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 we can tell the difference. We know the difference between a bad date and sexual assault. Well, apparently Kate Mann doesn't seem to really know the difference because she's saying because the man is guilty of sniffing a woman's hair, he's the type to shove a woman against the wall and, and rape her essentially. Yeah. Which is it, you know? I, I also, look, there were aspects of her piece I agreed with, but the theory that like you can chalk up a behavior like rape to quote unquote entitlement. I, I've always had a problem with that because I think, there are many entitled people in the world. There are not a lot of rapists in the world. And right. there's sort of a, a circular... I, I wouldn't be making this point if it wasn't such a big part of the discourse, but I really do think it is. You hear male entitlement, white entitlement. It, it's used as an... Power. Ex- yeah. It's used as, as an explanation for a lot of different kinds of behaviors. And it it is circular because if someone commits an act, then almost by definition, they felt they were entitled to commit that act. It doesn't like actually explain anything in a useful way and i think it's very important to figure out why men commit rape if you want to stop it so right yeah and a lot of this goes back to this to the to the narrative that that rape isn't about sex it's about power which was sort of a 1970s feminist argument put forth by this woman susan brown miller that really took hold i mean people just sort of it's repeated so often that it's one of these things that that people assume is true but when you talk to people who work with you know convicted sex offenders and you ask them why or you ask people who have you know committed sex crimes it's if you ask them why they do it it's generally about sex it's generally you know that's what they say it's like i was horny i wanted to do it not like i wanted to you know express my power over this woman it was like i wanted to fucking rape this woman because i wanted to have sex yeah and also just like intuitively if you think about like um frat boys talking about how they getting girls really drunk so their their inhibitions will be lowered i guess from a certain angle you could make that about power but but they want to have sex. That is the point right. of this horrible behavior. And there's certain areas that become sort of like sacred subjects that you don't apply the same logic or rigor to and, and where mantras take hold. And it just, it worries me because this is such an important area. And I just think a lot of the conversation about it doesn't really make sense. But the other thing is like, the, the one thing I always go back to whenever sexual assault comes up is I do I do still think it's really hard for a lot of women to report. It's different if you're like, if it's a high profile case or there's other incentives, but it seems like a lot of the time this would be easier if women felt empowered to report it at the time. Like, it's just, it's very hard to adjudicate these cases years after they allegedly occurred. And I sure. just wish there were some way to make that easier. I, I actually have personal experience where like i i was dating someone who was groped by a cab driver or like an unlicensed cab driver i i always look back at this and try to figure out if i handled it the right way because i did encourage her and i'm worried if i encouraged her too much to go to the police and she ended up going to the police and reporting this guy and it was not a pleasant experience like the cops were very stereotypically the officer who interviewed her was very stereotypically sort of 
questioning her behavior and making it more about what she did. And she'd been through this traumatic experience. So I think there's a real trade-off in trying to nudge people to report. But, you know, this was a cab driver who was assaulting people and you want people like that brought to justice. So I think um, just one area I wish society would get better is make it easier to report this stuff when it happens. You know, I think it also really in some in some cases can depend on you live in the particular police department, you know, in your town or whatever. There was a, a great article in The New Yorker in January by a woman named Elizabeth Flock about a case in Alabama um, where a woman was raped. Like, no question. She was raped. There were witnesses. Um, and she she killed this guy after he was attacking her. And she is, you know, she was convicted of murder. Um, and it, so there are legal there, there are laws vary by state. But in some states, women have basically no legal defense even in a case like that where like there are people witnessing you being attacked and you kill this guy in self-defense and you're the one who ends up jail for the rest of your fucking life which is deeply fucked up like i don't want to minimize how fucked up the legal system can be that said regardless of why tara Reid decided not to report this to authorities she also didn't report it apparently to anybody at the time except for her friends um and so you know 27 years later, trying to adjudicate this is just kind of an impossible task, especially if you're a person who has been supportive of Me Too and are now in the position of either supporting a candidate who's been accused of sexual assault or supporting a candidate who's been accused of sexual assault or sitting the whole thing out. And in which case, someone who's been accused of sexual assault is going to end up in the White House. So for me, I was skeptical of Me Too from the beginning, not skeptical of all of the claims, but just sort of skeptical that this was going to ultimately lead to sort of a better society. And I'm not I'm not sure that it has. You know, my concern I was concerned about the lack of due process in these claims, a lot of which were, you know, sort of made publicly and not in the legal not in the legal system. So I'm glad that I don't have to tie myself in knots to sort of resign my <laughs> resign myself to this. It's a difficult position to be in if you were one of the, you know, supporters of the Me Too movement. I think I'm I think I'm probably overall less skeptical about Me Too than you are. For me it's just um this is so exacerbating my depression that Biden was the guy. It's just yeah. like I I can't believe we're in this position where the the Democratic nominee we have to deal with a sexual assault alley. Like it's just crazy. I Do you think that some of the Okay, so the a lot of the reporting that has been done on this has been done by like very uh how do I say Bernie bros. It's been done by Bernie bros. Um, So does that make you more skeptical that these claims have come to light now, right after Biden, you know, secures the nomination? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to fall in that trap of, of getting nudged too far one way or another, uh, evaluating a rape accusation based on politics. It's just, it's very clear to me that if you flip this around and like, Bernie, God forbid, was accused of something on the same basis of evidence, I would just see, I think everyone would just flip their positions if they were like a Warren or Biden support. It just seems so obvious to me. I know maybe I'm not giving people enough credit, but it's just like the Kavanaugh thing too, where I, I personally thought the balance of evidence was that, yeah, she was assaulted. People can disagree, but it was so like, People have a lot of trouble understanding their own bias and how our politics affect the way we see the world. It, it just seems strikingly obvious to me that in the Reed case in particular, where there's a lot of fuzziness, people would just people are just believing what's convenient. And I think that's what exhausts me about it a little. It makes me not, not even want to like express strong opinions on it because it's just it's very unclear to me what happened. I'm just depressed we're in this situation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I have a I have a fantasy that Biden is going to drop out and um, he will be replaced by Al Franken. Oh, wow. That would. Yeah. 
You know, just like Al Franken has never been accused of rape, at least. Whatever he's been accused of, rape was not one of one of the allegations against him. And I also just think he'd be a great fucking president. Yeah. Or maybe Harvey Weinstein, if he can clear up his legal issues. <laughs> How about Jeffrey Epstein? Too soon. Too soon, Katie. Too soon. Too soon. Okay, moving on. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to talk about Candace Owens, who will always have a place in my heart for reasons I'll explain. Owens is, people yell at me when I call her far right. I think by any reasonable standard, she's far right. She's a online personality who has become wildly successful in part because conservatives really like African-Americans who talk about how African-Americans shouldn't be Democrats. She fits that niche. Her book is called, I'm going to try to read this without crying or laughing. Blackout, how black American can make its second escape from the Democrat plantation. Oh, wow. Quite the imagery there. Yeah. So, you know, clearly implying that Democrats are basically enslaving black Americans. Candace Owens has been just slinging coronavirus conspiracy theory bullshit. She claimed that like liberal states were overstating their death totals for some sort of financial reason, which is, I mean, think about, think about what an accusation that is to say like New York is claiming people who are dead are dead, who aren't dead. But she got involved with this um, controversy in Michigan. The democratic governor Whitmer there is under fire for her restrictions. So Candace Owens tweeted last week, Apparently, at Gov Whitmer, that's Whitmer's handle, believes she is a duly elected dictator of a socialist country. The people of Michigan need to stand up to her. Open your businesses. Go to work. The police think she's crazy, too. They are not going to arrest 10 million people for going to work. So she's basically calling for like this sort of uprising, not like an armed uprising, but but go to work, ignore the government orders, which would, of course, be very dangerous, I think, and infect a lot of people. Twitter suspended her for this. That immediately launched her into the status of a martyr among a lot of conservative people. Then they brought her back. Then they censored the tweet. So I ended up writing about this in my newsletter um, this week. I'll link to it. And I'm, I'm curious to get your stance on this. I, I'm actually not that, I don't get that upset when Twitter makes certain discuss, decisions about regulating content like I think it's complicated. You need to really weigh different values, competing priorities. I don't think Twitter needs to just let anything fly. I do think when it comes to people calling for others to defy the government, Twitter and Facebook, every platform should actually go a lot lighter on that. I just think there's something unique and important about allowing people to say, I want you to defy the government. That That's important and deserves protection. And I think that des- it deserves protection even when the speaker is someone who is certifiably crazy like Candace Owens. Does that strike you as insane? Uh, no, not at all. Um, so, but I do have a question for you. So Facebook, you know, was um, deleting or censoring. They were shutting down event like event pages for these like rallies in you know these like anti anti quarantine rallies um and because of it was a public health issue so are you do you think that like that also should be protected even if it's this idea that it's you know it's a public health issue people are gonna be spreading the virus yeah no i think that's a really tough trade-off i think the idea of facebook shutting down people's attempts to to organize politically on what is a mainstream debate? I, I just think you can't do that. And I'm torn because like that is, it's a dangerous gathering, but 
people have already decided to try to gather and obviously i wouldn't feel that way if you're talking about like a nazi gathering i think facebook should i'm fine with them censoring like far far out there but what does it do if like people actually disagree about this and want to organize politically about it i just i don't like anything that just says like the government needs to be treated as infallible we need a squelch debate about its decisions because tomorrow you know maybe there'll there'll be some other controversy about like islamic terrorism or something and people like us will disagree with the government and want to tell people not to follow their rules i just i don't like this idea of of these big unaccountable tech companies being in bed with the government even in situations like this where i agree with the their politics right i mean that's the problem with all of these these attempts to or one of the problems with all of these attempts to censor online first of all like you said you turn you turn the centered party into a martyr um there's a streisand effect whereas probably not that many people would have seen candace's owens tweet and then she gets banned and now everybody has seen candace's owens tweet so it doesn't from just a pragmatic perspective it doesn't make a lot of sense but then the you know i think the bigger issue is that if these rules are applied consistently and they are not applied consistently uh by tech companies but if they were applied consistently then you know you should also shut down antifa rallies or whatever you know you should you should shut down these like far left attempts to organize against the government which i as much as i disagree with antifa i still don't think that you know um that their ability to organize should be limited by tech companies i mean and you know i think we should also point out that you know this is not a first it might be a free speech issue but it's not a first amendment issue these companies are well within their rights to um operate however they'd like and if that means you know uh, kicking every candace owens off of twitter or every milo off of facebook or every alex jones off of youtube they're well within their rights to do it but they have so much power that i'm totally concerned about this creeping censorship and we have seen this you know like Megan Murphy being banned from Twitter for tweeting men are not women or whatever, you know, people, trans people being kicked off of Twitter for misgendering themselves, um, (laughs) you know, which, which has happened. I don't think it's pragmatic. I think it's a disturbing trend, but also like they are well within their rights to operate however they want. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it drives me crazy when people try to make this a first amendment issue just because people are so ignorant about the nature of, of the first amendment. But it also drives me crazy. Like, I'm not accusing you of this because because you're doing the opposite, but you can't just say, well, it's not a First Amendment issue, so I, I'm not going to express any opinion about what they do. They can do whatever they want. There's been there's a real um, hunger for censorship in our corner of the world, like among liberal journalists that I, I think I mentioned this the the last episode. But, you know, there was this feud between Stephen Crowder, like a right wing comedian on the um and Carlos Maza, this socialist commentator, used to work for Vox. And liberal journalists seem to really be lining up and, and racing to say that this guy, Crowder, should have been demonetized or banned from YouTube for saying things like calling Maza a lispy, a lispy little queer, I think he called him. And stuff on that level, which is is definitely mean, but you can say that in a comedy central roast on basic cable. Right. And Mata is also a public figure. Like if you put yourself in the position of becoming a public figure, you you need to expect that people are going to make fun of you. You know, he's not like, like choosing some like high school kid and like, and like bullying him. Mata has put himself out there. It was, I got to say like, um, look, I, I really like, you know, the show reply all, but reply all and a lot of other outlets. I like, we're treating this like it was some like helpless 10 year old getting bullied on a playground rather than um, a guy who, 
makes a lot of money doing what he does and and happens also to come from like a super wealthy background so i think that wasn't out yet but it's just this weird i I don't understand how people don't think it through like okay if we're saying youtube you can be banned for saying stuff on youtube that would fly on basic cable if people if that was applied consistently what would youtube look like in a month or two i guess maybe it's that if you're a liberal journalist you know that youtube is gonna side with you they're not going to actually apply the rules consistently it becomes this like wholly partisan thing where for a lot of people especially in the media your allegiance is sort of determined by the parties involved so you like carlos maza so therefore youtube should you know censor steven crowder you don't like candace owens so therefore um you know twitter should censor candace owens you know and the truth is like tech companies do have a liberal bias, which is also fine. You know, these are privately owned companies. They're allowed to have a liberal, a liberal bias, but they do have so much power right now that they really have become the sort of town square. And uh, I don't know, I would like them to see, to see, I would like to see them apply these rules um, evenly when they're going to apply these rules, but they don't, and they're not, they're not obligated to. No. And I also just think like, I think I'm saying this point, uh, Glenn Greenwald was on the fifth column. Um, I think I'm stealing this point from him, but it's like, Okay, YouTube and other other platforms are announcing like basically if you if you deviate from WHO guidelines in some cases that kind of speech should be you can be regulated or censored but the WHO has been wrong about stuff all the time and the idea that you can just pick okay at this moment whatever the WHO says goes that's pretty dangerous in the same way it's dangerous to say whatever the government is calling for right now you can't even you can't even argue otherwise so I think I just resent being in a position where I have to defend Candace Owens, who is just like one of the worst media figures around. I th- I like that about you, though. I mean, I-, I think that that's one of the problems with the media right now is too many people are not willing to defend bad people if because of, you know, if the principle needs to be defended because, you know, you end up sort of defending these odious people who you don't like. And so people refuse to do it. Um, so we need more defense of, of bad people. I will defend any bad person who needs me to defend them. Well, you're on the you're on the right podcast for that. So I want to hear your I want to hear your your Candace Owens story. I was into Candace Owens before she was big, you could say. <laughs> I, you're an early adopter of Candace Owens. Candace Owens is from Connecticut. She was involved in some local media story where she was bullied by I think a kid who was riding in a car with the child of a local town official. It was just one of those local blowups involving school bullying. From this, she developed what she said was an interest in halting bullying online. So in 2016, she launched Social Autopsy, which very much based on its vague Kickstarter campaign came across as a site where anyone could accuse anyone of bullying and then they would be listed in a database as a bullier. That sounds like a great idea. You know who would love this? I think I think Carlos Massa would have uh, would have loved this site. Exactly. Yeah, he would have been a big fan. I, I'd love to get his thoughts on it. Carlos, you should yeah. come on the show. Yeah. Um, you should unblock us first and then come on the show. Yeah, he blocked me. Well, this is a story for another day. Actually, I think we committed early on the podcast. No stories about getting blocked, but we'll talk about Carlos more. Yeah, this is a story for block party. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> block party. Love to have you on. Um, okay, so she launched Social Autopsy. It was called. There was the thing that happens where online out with online outrages where like there was initially some silence, then a few people found out about it. They got mad. It reached Reddit. It reached 4chan. Candace Owens got like a horrible wave of online harassment, including a lot of racist harassment because everyone thought this was such a bad idea. It was just like an engine for doxing and harassing people and, and 
falsely accusing them of being bullies. It was just in every conceivable way, the most tone deaf, bad idea. And she got genuinely harassed about it. As she deserved. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We are pro bullying and harassment <laughs> here on blocked and reported. Um, I was at New York Magazine at the time and I wrote a story. I got in touch with her. I wanted to find out what had happened because she was starting to sort of melt down a little bit online. She was starting to, it's easy to say this in retrospect, but her tweets back then came across as actually pretty Trumpy. Like everyone is against me. There's a conspiracy. Everything's so unfair. I got in touch with her and I, I told this story of how this woman who didn't know anything about the internet wandered into this hornet's nest and became radicalized into believing there was this conspiracy against her. And I'll just post a link to the story because I don't want to go into all the details. It has to do with, with Gamergate and gaming, but, but just the level of ignorance on her part where she was like, so doxing is a common term in online discourse. It means posting someone's private information, uh, connecting their online identity to their real life identity. She didn't even know what doxing was. So she, in from her point of view, she, suddenly she's like, huh, everyone's using this term doxing. This must be a conspiracy because why else would they be using the term doxing? Which is, if you know anything about this stuff, it's nonsensical. Anyway, I write this piece and she um, really didn't like it. So... The result of this was she had various higher ups at New York Magazine pinged with emails for this change.org petition called New York Magazine's Jesse Single Commits Fraud. Article in question should be recalled. It, it just launched one of like, at the time, one of the worst online blowups I'd experienced where suddenly this big corner of the internet was just not, not just like going after me in a fuck you way, but uh, trying to start rumors about me. Someone... Like basically all these online trolls realized that they could manipulate Owens and just get like retweeting or saying whatever they wanted. So one of them literally tweeted at her that I had some dark, horrible incident from college. Mm. Yeah. Imply it You're very much the bottom of that. Exactly. And she instantly retweeted it. And so I was I had never been through this before. And I, I freaked out to the point where I like had a meeting with higher ups at New York magazine just being like this is getting really crazy. And I'm like, I'm almost approaching the point of considering legal options. Cause it's, it's so far beyond criticizing the article. There's so much sort of what struck me at the time as, as uh, libelous stuff going on. So yeah, it was my first introduction to like truly insane online pylons, like with this extra element of trying to destroy someone's reputation. And it's, I mean, as as you're aware, it's not it's not fun to be at the bottom of that. And I think if you told me in 2016 that this was just like the start of how weird online stuff was going to get, I never I never would have believed you. And I also never would have believed that like the stuff I got from the left would have ended up being way worse than the stuff I got from the far right. But uh, you live and you learn. Yeah, I think that's kind of one of the interesting things about this. Like I read your piece about Candace Owens. And in the piece, so it you know it was sort of about also about Gamergate. And in the piece, you seemed kind of skeptical that like feminists could be involved in bullying, um, which I think by now you've probably realized is like feminists, uh, you know, lefties, feminists, whoever. It's this is not a partisan issue. Everybody can be involved in bullying except for us. We are not bullies. No, we're not bullies. And, and the other thing about this is like. 
Candace Owens is a really good example of how when you feel attacked by your own side, how it does, it can have this radicalizing effect where you, you, you know, you feel shunned, you feel like a pariah. And so for some people, they end up sort of jumping into the arms of the other political tribe because there's like, we live in this this system where it feels like there's two options, which is obviously not true because that's about political parties, not about sort of social social networks or whatever um but candace owen is a great a great example of that which i i think is really a shame um i or i think it's a shame that she went from like someone who seems to like have genuinely cared about this issue to someone who not only like engages in bullying herself but also you know has turned into basically like a fucking trump supporter um but she got to meet she got to meet Kanye though. Oh well, uh, <laughs> worth it, worth it. That's right. Kanye yeah. came out as a Candace Owens fan. I forgot about that. There's a there's a lot of discourse about like how you know YouTube can radicalize young men into into turning into Nazis and stuff like that. Well, it's also true that when you get attacked by people who you consider your ideological allies, it can have the exact same effect where you just feel like you have to like find. Um, some sort of support elsewhere and that support tends to be you know like among the far right in her case at least yeah it's someone needs to write like the definitive rise of candace owens piece it's really interesting she got i think she got latched onto by turning point usa and charlie kirk which is just this like goonish right-wing effort um i think the right is much better at like nurturing talent and and giving them money the fact that someone this crazy, like she, she, she's not normal. There's something off there. And the fact that she has quickly risen to the stature of like a conservative superstar tells you something about the movement. I, I just don't, I don't like, look, I, Carlos Maza is a dick, but he's not on the just like disturbed, detached from reality level as like a Candace Owens. I, I just think they've got a whole different thing going on over there, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm being unfair. Well, I also think that her race probably has something to do with, you know, the level of which she's been embraced by the political right, because, you know, identity politics is incredibly powerful. And if you have someone who is black saying, you know, Democrats are the party of slavery or whatever, um, that has a lot more resonance than somebody who's white saying it, even if she is equally unhinged and incorrect about it, it's, you know, it's sort of, she becomes a sort of useful idiot. Oh, conservative, conservatives love, love, uh, black commentators and pundits who can say the stuff they wish they could say that this has been a thing for a long time. And, it, and I mean, liberals do too. I mean, I, I think this, yes. this goes both ways. And you know what, like as much as I hate identity politics, I also like will totally acknowledge that there are things that I can say because I'm a woman, uh, because I'm a lesbian that I absolutely could not say if I were a man. So you know, identity politics works for me in some way as well. Well, like all the anti-Semitic slurs you use against me, if you weren't a lesbian, you couldn't get away with that. No, if I, I can say that because I'm an honorary Jew. That's true. Herzog. Um, okay. Uh, anything else we should um, we should milk out of the Candace Owens story? No, I just feel like I've done listeners a terrible disservice by introducing them to Candace Owens. So I'd like to apologize for that. You know, Jesse, so did you have the first like big like national piece on Candace Owens? Yeah. Weirdly enough, her and and her and ContraPoints, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you created both, and they both fucking hate you now. Look at that. I think with ContraPoints, it's a little bit more complicated, but yeah, Mm -hmm. for a while at least, she hated me. But I, you know what? When you're like me, when you're a trendsetter, when you're ahead of the curve, (laughs) you're an influencer. 
I think it's literally just back back when I wrote about both of them, I was so much more online than I am even now that I could like notice stuff before other people did. But I think these days, like the market for writing about online bullshit is much more crowded. Yeah, yeah, it's too bad. You got pushed out by your own creation. I just have such like a just talking about Biden and the the Tara Reid thing just made me so tired. I just I'm gonna sleep the entire week until we next record, okay? All right. Well, hopefully nothing will happen um in the in the next week. Um, okay, so Definitely keep rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, we are blocked and reported podcast at gmail.com, the bar pod on Twitter. Anything else we should? We have a Reddit. There's a, um, we have a Reddit, a Reddit page now. Oh, yeah. A few days ago, we did a, a few days ago, yesterday. God, coronavirus yesterday. is just destroying time. Katie and I did a, uh, an Ask Me Anything on Reddit. So if you go to reddit.com slash r slash blocked and reported, this is our subreddit. It is closing in on a hundred members, so it's it's huge, huge. We're almost uh, up there with with Chapo Trap House's subreddit. I'm sure. <laughs> or blog they, party. Thank you to Soft and Chewy, which is such <laughs> a good username for for creating the subreddit. There's, there's something like vaguely obscene about that. Oh, it's disgusting, but it's also wonderful. <laughs> I don't know why, but yes, it's disgusting. Uh, yeah, I think that's it, Katie. Are you uh, are you ready to call it? I'm ready to call it. I'm ready to block it. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, believe all women sometimes, depending on the situation and the political scene. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, if you're walking along Jesse's street and you see a bunch of little piles of shit, it probably belongs to him. <laughs>